Radiolab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like to relax every now and then. Your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, automatically reinvesting your dividends. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, Wait, you're listening? Okay. All right. <clears throat> You're li- listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. Shorts <laughs> from WNYC and NPR. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab, the podcast. The podcast, and in this podcast, I don't know. How would you describe this one? My sense is that you walk into a wild place. And you hear the wind and the trees, and you hear these chirps and sounds and calls, and they're just part of the—they're part of the wild. They're wildlife, but there's now a group of scientists who listen much more closely and who are reducing wildlife to wild talk. It's—it's it's, uh, yeah. There are words in there. When you find the words, as the people we will meet do in these stories. You end up not just understanding, but actually entering that wild space in a very cool way. So we're going to tell you two tales here. Two different places. The first, a jungle. And the second? A prairie. Right. Jungle gets us started, and then the prairie later. Uh, This is a story, this first one, that we heard about. Yeah, yeah. From Ari. I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro. I'm a public radio producer in Boston. And Ari recently met a guy. Like a German guy. He's, uh, he's Swiss. No. Okay. So yeah, his name's Klaus Zuberbuhler. Hey, Ari, it's Klaus. And he's a professor of psychology. At the University of St. Andrews. Which is in Scotland. And where does the story actually take place? Because Where's the jungle? Yeah. Well, I, 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 maybe the best place to start is to kind of describe the, the scene where we are, okay. which is in the Thai forest. Thai forest. Which is in the Ivory Coast in Africa. So it's not in Thailand. No, it's not. No. It's T-A-I. T-A-I. Okay. Yeah. And... Klaus describes the jungle as this thick sensory world. Very dark, very moist, and very, very green. And you can't really see for more than 15 to 20 feet. And, I mean, sometimes you feel like you, you walk through, uh, you know, a, a big cathedral of dark trees, and you don't see very much because all the animals are uh, obviously very shy and run away. I mean, is it still? <laughs> Uh, no, it's it is it is very very noisy. It's a din. It's just this kind of sonic chaos. All these insects and birds and bats and mammals. It, it's almost as if they compete for acoustic space. So it is very very loud. I mean, the the, the main sensation you have in the beginning really is that you're you're just completely lost. So, it's 1991, and 
He figured he had to start somewhere, so he focused his attention on a kind of monkey. A very beautiful monkey, I think. Called the Diana monkey. There's a mix of black, white, and sort of reddish. Diana monkeys live up in the treetops, which can be as high as 100 feet off the ground. Wow. They eat fruits, and they eat insects, and they're chattering. A cacophony of calls. Which, to him, of course, you know, as, an, as a newcomer to the forest, was all just noise. It's a little bit, I imagine, like a, a child trying to learn a language, which initially must just sound like a string of sounds that he can't really understand. And then, you know, what. So, what did he do? Well, he started provoking the monkeys into making different kinds of noises. For instance, he'd walk out into the forest with a boombox and play. The sound of the Diana monkey's most feared predator, the leopard. He would just play the sound into the trees? Yep. And all of a sudden, suddenly, they start leaping around the branches, hopping around, and they make this one particular call. You know, these very loud alarm calls. This one here. Meaning what? Yeah, are they just saying, like, run, or is it something more specific? Well, here's where it gets a little bit more interesting. Next step, he brought that same cassette player out. Pointed at the trees, hit play, all that? Yep, but this time, he plays... The shrieks of a crowned eagle. Eagles eat monkeys? Yeah, they do. They attack from above. I've heard about them. They're very scary. They come flying in with their talons or their beaks, and they hit you in the head sharply and kill you instantly. Oof. And then you fall to the ground. Yeah. And so what do the monkeys do when they hear this? They make that sound. Same one? Well, that's what he thought. But when he went back to the lab and started looking at the sounds on the computer, comparing one to the other, eagle, leopard, eagle, leopard, he realized that they're actually slightly different. In the acoustic details of the calls, and it's something that is very difficult to hear when you you really only see it in, in the spectrogram, which is kind of a visual representation of these calls. This is on the computer? Yeah. But interestingly, once you've seen that, and once you know what to pay attention to, you go out into the forest and, and suddenly you do hear these differences, which you haven't heard before. So you're saying when they hear a call leopard coming, they go up the tree, but when they hear eagle coming, they run down the tree? Exactly. Exactly. So it's really kind of like a word. They, it's yeah. like a word. Well, that's kind of amazing. Let's pull out for a second, because this guy actually got us thinking, honestly. How much language actually is out there in the wild? Like, what do we know? What's the state of what we know right now? And that question led us out of the forest, just for a second, and to a place and a creature we just didn't think would be a part of this conversation at all. Um, And that creature is... The prairie dog. Woo! Prairie dogs. So here's the thing. Prairie dogs are these little rodent-like animals. They live under the ground in burrows. And when their community is invaded, they, you know, pop out of the burrow. And they say, "Uh uh-oh, here comes the whatever. Sounds kind of like chee, 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 chee. Chee, 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 chee. 
So we spoke with this guy. Uh, my name is Kant Slobachikov, Professor Emeritus at Northern Arizona University. Who's spent a whole lot of time sitting out in the colonies. Recording prairie dog calls. And he now believes that these simple little rodents are like nature's wordsmiths. Well, the thing is that initially I recorded... For instance, he began by telling us that the prairie dogs have different kinds of cheese... For different kinds of predators. For example... Humans, coyotes... And dogs. Right. Is this the kind of thing that we would actually be able to hear the difference between the calls? I'm guessing that you could hear the difference. You want to try it, Chad? Yeah. So, can you just play those samples? All right, so here, here's one. This is a, another one. All right. Okay. Here you go. This is a third. Those represent different predators? Yep. Huh, I, 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 don't, I, I can't tell the difference. Can you? I mean, do you know what they are? My guess is human, dog, coyote. Con was right. Con was right? Wow. Well, naturally, we wondered how, how did How did he, he do that? Yeah. He told us that at first, just like you and I, he couldn't figure out how to distinguish between these sounds. But he took the sound back to the lab. Where we had a machine that allowed us to measure a series of uh, frequency and time elements in the call. And what this computer does is it takes the sound that the prairie dogs make and it essentially looks inside for the ingredients inside the sound. Yeah, like, uh, well, it's kind of hard to hear with a chirp. Because it's just hard. So l let me uh, demonstrate crudely with this other sound. I plucked this at random from my library. So this is kind of like a buzz. Okay. Okay. Mm. Let me just loop it so we can hear it better. So here you've got this buzz, which is sounds to us like a solid piece of noise. But get an EQ and take away all the highs. So now you've got just the bass. Yep. Now, you'll notice that if you add the highs back in real slowly, these little hidden overtones will pop out. Like, uh, there's one. Yeah. There's another. Uh-huh. Third. <laughs> yep. Fourth. Uh-huh. So in other words, this sound is filled with little ghost notes that we can't hear. And certainly the same is true of this sound. Except in the case of the prairie dogs, it seems their ears are tuned to hear all the different sounds within the chirp. Probably sounds to them like this whole layer cake of tones. And Khan's computer noticed that the noise they made when a human walked through their village was different in tone from the noise they made when a coyote walked through their village. It was, it was consistently different. But there was a problem. When he zoomed in on the, uh-oh, here come the human calls. These ones here? And he looked at them really closely. He saw that from one human call to the next, there was a lot of subtle variation. Much, much more than I would expect. And that's when it hit him. What if? What if? What if? What if they could be describing the individual humans? Oh. Now, at that time, no one suspected that this might even be a possibility. But I thought, well... Let's try it and see what happens. So, Khan recruited four humans. And he had them dress exactly the same. Same boots, same blue jeans, same sunglasses, everything the same except the color of their shirts. We had a person in a blue t-shirt, person in a green t-shirt, person in a yellow shirt, person in a gray shirt. Then he asked each of them to walk through the prairie dog village. One by one. Prairie dogs made their chirps. And when we analyzed the results, there were significant differences. Like what kind? They essentially clustered around the colors. 
Does that mean you think you can hear them saying, here comes the human in blue? Right. Versus here comes the human in yellow? Right. Really? Oh, I was astounded. I was astounded. I was like, well, wait a second. These humans, they're not just different in their shirt colors. They're... They're different in all kinds of ways. Some of the humans were taller, some of the humans were shorter. So we went back, reanalyzed the chirps, looked a little more closely. And he realized we could tease out that the prairie dogs were also commenting about the uh, general size of the human. Essentially, they were saying, here comes the tall human in the blue versus here comes the short human in the yellow. Wow. And then he made another leap. And it was just, you know, since he was on a roll. Um, off-the-wall idea at that time. He went back into the prairie dog field and he built two large wooden boxes. Sitting on stilts. A good distance from each other. Uh, 150 feet. And we strung wires between the two towers. His team then made cardboard cutouts of three different shapes. A circle, a square, and a triangle. And then they ran them out along the wire, kind of like laundry fluttering above you in the breeze. Each shape would emerge from (laughs) one of the tower blinds and fly uh, something like about three feet over the prairie dog town. So literally you would just kind of go, and out would come a triangle or a circle or a square? Correct. And what we found was that the prairie dogs could tell the triangle from the circle very easily, but they could not seem to tell the difference between a square and a circle. Huh. Why not? Well, my guess is that triangles kind of look like cocks. Mm. Circles and squares kind of look like terrestrial predators. Nonetheless, what you've got here is a little rodent with a remarkably big vocabulary including, but probably not limited to, short, fat, skinny, tall, blue, green, yellow, gray, coyote, human, hawk, triangle, and or square. Yay! It's not bad. Is the next step that you're going to perform a scene from The Winter's Tale and see whether the (laughs) prairie dogs laugh at the right moments? What do you do next? Well, we just are scratching the surface of looking at this. For example, prairie dogs have a lot of calls which we call social chatters. One prairie dog will be feeding and suddenly lift up its head and go chitter, chatter, chitter, chitter. And another prairie dog somewhere across the colony will lift up its head and go chatter, chatter, chitter, chitter. But what does it mean? We have no way of getting at it. Mm -hmm. It could be just simply chatter, chitter, chitter, or it could be, do you know where Sam was last night? Now, here's an interesting question. I mean, if a French couple were sitting next to me on the subway and they were saying, do you know where Sam was last night in French? If I don't speak French, I'm outside of that conversation. But a lot of people do speak French and they can listen to French people talking. The question's then raised, if you live in the forest and you speak chimp or you speak eagle or you speak snake, would you ever be able to overhear or learn something from a neighborly species? In other words, is there an equivalent of listening to the other person talking French in, in the wild? Good question. And that brings us back to Klaus. You remember Klaus? Yeah, the, the monkey guy. Yeah, the monkey guy. Well, Klaus was wondering the same thing. And that's uh, Ari Daniel Shapiro again who introduced us to Klaus. So take those alarm calls, for instance. He wanted to know whether 
different species of monkeys could understand each other. Right, so, um, and luckily for Klaus, um, there's like at least 10 different primate species living inside that Thai forest. So there's um, one, colobus monkeys, two, spot-nosed monkeys, three, chimpanzees, four, galagos, five, colobines, six, putty-nosed monkeys, seven, mangabe species, eight, prosimians, nine, Campbell's monkeys, and then the Dianas, ten. Yeah, so it's a very, very rich primate fauna. So Klaus's question was, could Diana monkeys understand the alarm calls of another one of these monkeys, the Campbell's monkey? Oh, could they go across monkey lines, so to speak? Exactly. Hmm. So he used that same setup from before. The speaker thing where he plays the sound into the trees? Yeah, and he played the eagle and leopard alarm calls from the Campbell's monkeys to the Diana's to see if they'd react. And what we found there, to our great surprise, was that the Diana monkeys... They understand it. Really? Really? Yep. They take it very, very seriously and respond to it very strongly. So a Diana monkey hearing a Campbell's eagle alarm call will respond as though there were an eagle and will respond to the leopard alarm call as though there were a leopard, and vice versa. And it doesn't stop there. Klaus started playing the monkey calls to birds. Such as hornbills. Yellow casked hornbills. It, it turns out that... They understand it. The birds? Yeah, these hornbills... Are capable of discriminating these different monkey alarm calls. Wow. So it's a pretty substantial web of species basically eavesdropping on, on each other's calls in these forests. But Klaus himself, he was still on the outside of it all. It is that um, general sense of perhaps not really belonging there. But then... He told me about this one day. I was uh, working um, in the forest. He, he had gone out for the day, and he had gone out alone. And I was very far away from camp. And it was in the late afternoon, and he realized that he should probably be heading back to camp. Because I still had to walk for, uh, you know, something like 15, 20 kilometers to, back to camp. And he was walking past a, a kind of valley. And then I heard on the other side of the valley a monkey group giving leopard alarm calls, which doesn't happen that often. It was the first time that he wasn't actively listening, but he heard these monkeys make this call and recognized it. It was absolutely striking. And he was actually quite excited by this. Because I was suddenly able to understand what the monkey's trying to say, so to speak. Those monkeys had picked up a leopard. Right beneath that sound, there the leopard would be. Right. But, you know, those monkeys were way across the valley. So I didn't really think that much and walked on, perhaps, you know, half, half a mile further down the road. And the next group of Diana monkeys, still across the valley, uh, started giving leopard alarm calls as well. And he kind of took notice of that. And then it happened a third time, a few minutes later. What became clear to me very rapidly is that a leopard was tracking him. Oh. Of course, I couldn't see it because it was, you know, dense forest, but I, I assumed that the, the, the leopard saw me. And Ooh. of course, that, you know, is, is just one of these moments where you're, uh, you know, you're totally alone, um, far, far away from camp. What does he do? He, he kept walking. It happened a fourth group called leopard, fifth group called leopard. And then... The group stopped calling. The only thing I could think of is to pick up, um, you know, a large branch. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. That's just terrifying. Klaus, would that stick have done anything for you? Uh, 
I, I doubt I really would have been able to do very much with a stick. But as he's standing there, stick in hand, he realizes. He's just entered the forest. He's become... The 11th primate. The 11th primate. Because there are those 10 other species of primate, and now... Me. Suddenly, I, I shifted from being the objective observer to being, uh, you know, sort of part of, of that whole crowd in there. Even though, you know, we're separated by 20, 30 millions of years of evolutionary history, you know, these humble creatures, um, you know, were able to teach me something about, uh, you know, what was going on in the forest. And, I mean, of course it wasn't intentional, they weren't trying to inform me or anything like that, uh, but um, it, it was a, a very emotional experience. So what happened? I mean, obviously he didn't get eaten. What happened? Well, he he made it back to camp, and he's not sure what happened to the leopard. The leopard must have slinked off into the forest. In the end, it became... Just another story to tell each other over beers in the evening, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Thanks for that story to Ari Daniel Shapiro, our correspondent. And also thanks to um, Klaus Zuberbuehler and Khan Slobachkov. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwitz. Thanks for listening. This is Cassandra Williard, a Radiolab listener in Brooklyn, New York. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. For more information about Sloan, go to W... <laughs> Let me start over. <laughs> More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. End of message. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite.